weird things were happening. I don't know what I was invoking, but I started having like lights flashing a lot in my house. It was really freaky, especially when I was meditating. This is some spiritual power that's being evoked and, and that's kind of cool, but where is this power coming from? And whenever you gain something from a power, there's something that they want back. Welcome everyone to the Where Truth Lies podcast. I'm your host, Kat, and today I have Alexander Frank. He was very much in love with the search for truth, so he searched through almost everything popular in modern society, yoga, Buddhism, depth psychology, shamanism, and personal growth. His search ultimately led to the Catholic Church. He is originally from Washington, D.C. He served five years as a U.S. Army Ranger, He's a graduate of Yale Law School and is currently a student at the Augustine Institute. Welcome, Alex. Thank you, Kat. It's very nice to meet you and very nice to be here. So glad. So I guess I'd love to start with how you got into yoga, what triggered this search for truth. Yeah, let's, uh, let's start from there. Sure. When I graduated from college, I had a bachelor's degree in physics and this was a good education in some respects, but I realized it was also limited. I was about to start leading soldiers in the army in life and death situations. So I wanted to better understand what I was leading them to sacrifice their lives possibly for, and also how to do that. Physics was good, but I started to realize that materialism was limited. Before that, I was very materialist. I discovered the Zen Buddhist philosopher named Ken Wilber. And his philosophy was very, very eye-opening. It illuminated a, a whole different area of life, the spiritual side of life, but it did it in a very rigorous way that wasn't very new agey on the mm -hmm. surface. Mm -hmm. I skeptical of certain things from the new age because it sounded like a lot of very vague hand waves and things like that but ken wilbur was very good at making it rigorous and making it accessible i was studying a lot of his teachings that opened me up to these kinds of things then throughout my time in the military i started to have back problems and was just beat up in general so i wanted to improve my well-being i started to practice just the very basic yoga that's out there in in secular society practicing the the uh, postures but even as i was doing that i felt this deeper pull i felt that there was something more to it there is this spiritual sense to all of it mm -hmm. that at the time i really liked it just felt very alluring and it didn't seem to carry all the heaviness of uh, Christianity and all the baggage that that seemed to create that, that I thought it had from my secular upbringing. From there, I, I really realized that in order to learn Ken Wilber's philosophy well, I had to actually practice it. I had mm -hmm. to put it into practice through some rigorous way. Yoga seemed like the best way to do that. I searched through a lot of different things and uh, yoga had just some amazing, complete explanations 
for a lot of the problems I was grappling with in lots of different areas. Mm -hmm. So just quickly, why, why were you even intrigued by Zen Buddhism in the first place? Was that because you were looking into it for personal development reasons? What was the call? Yes. Zen Buddhism seemed to provide some very rigorous explanations of the spiritual side of life. And it was very technically rigorous. Mm -hmm. It seemed very hard. You'd sit for two hours watching your breath or something like okay. that. And there were no excuses. You just had to focus on doing the task and, and doing it very well. Okay. Do you think we're looking for something spiritual since um, like being in the army, but being in war or what different timelines? That was certainly a part of it. I, I had been in war and I wanted to just make sense of those experiences of why it was important to, to do these things. And I, I just saw the limitations of the materialistic outlook. In mm -hmm. war, you can have units that are much smaller and have much less equipment defeat larger units that have much more material because they have a better spirit, because they just have a stronger will wow. to them. Okay, cool. All right. So you you you're attracted to yoga and it's you you're into the rigorous type of yoga. What was that called again? Uh, eventually I got into Kashmiri Shaivism. Okay. It's Kashmir refers to Kashmir in India and Shaivism refers to Shiva. That's mm -hmm. the origin of yoga in its modern form. It stems from Hatha yoga. Okay. All right. So you mentioned that, yeah, in some ways it was attractive because it doesn't carry the burdens necessarily or responsibilities that you might get with following a religion. And I had a similar experience as being spiritual but not religious is how I would have defined myself just two years ago. Um, it was like, this is great. I get all the um, the spiritual, or so I thought I did, all the spiritual fulfillment and all these things happening to me without sort of having to follow anything or, or necessarily give up anything. <laughs> that was my experience with that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can definitely relate to that. I thought that I was spiritual but not religious as well. And I thought that religion was a way to cause violence and it was a lot of superstition at the yeah. time, whereas yoga seemed to not come with those burdens because it was very focused on the technical, the technical practice rather than on dogmas and things like that. Yeah. So how soon did you start to feel, well, well yeah, dive in a bit more to what it was like to practice um, that type of yoga as you got into it, what was happening to you? Well, it, <laughs> so I, I spent three months in a Zen monastery first wow. and we practiced some yoga there. That was really nice to live an ordered life and to just be able to focus on meditation. It was up in the Catskill mountains in New York. So it was a beautiful wow. location and everything there was very regimented. You mm. ate and you meditated in a very specific way. Uh, anytime you entered the meditation area, you bowed a certain way and then walked to the side and walked up one side of the room. 
and then wow. did more bows before you sat down. Okay. Uh, <laughs> um, and then I, I uh, got to know this practitioner named David Data because he was recommended by Ken Wilbur. Mm -hmm. I was interested in some of his more, what seemed like esoteric practices. <laughs> and inspired by that, I did things like I went off to Peru, to the jungles of the Peru, to learn about the, the shamans there and also practice yoga. And wow. I started working really intensely with one of David Data's main students, Justin Patrick Pierce. And he was an excellent spiritual director. He really, he had a practice for everything. So I'd come to him with a problem, like some issue in my life. And then he would give me some practice that would directly address that and help me to just explain these currents in my soul in a very precise way. So I have a question. When you say he'd give you practices, like what what type of practices could purportedly uh, solve, yeah, these problems? So, for example, in working through emotional problems, he gave something called the nonlinear practice, which was a way to allow that energy to move through your body, but without collapsing into it. Okay. So it's good to have to live a very vivacious life where you have a lot mm -hmm. of feelings, but if those feelings dominate you, then you're not being present. Your awareness is collapsing into your feelings. Mm -hmm. So, and when you say exercises, you mean like actual physical exercises, like yoga <laughs> poses? <laughs> Some of them were yoga poses, but others were just types of breathing practices and types of meditation practices. There was a big variety of practices and I was really impressed by the technical sophistication of all the things that he was giving me. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of it was relational practices and just being aware of different dynamics and in relationships so that I could relate more fully to other people. Mm -hmm. So I was, uh, I was really impressed by all these things he was giving me. Yeah. All right. So what happens next? <laughs> Well, I, I started to see that there was more to these technical practices than, uh, first than it appeared on the surface. The practices seemed to assume a certain belief by this time I'd started graduate school at Yale. So mm -hmm. I was thinking about, there was a lot of competition between different philosophies there, especially in the law school. Uh, there was a lot of vicious competition between different philosophies. So I was really thinking about why, what actions reflected different belief systems. And that was also influenced by Ken Wilber's beliefs because he got me thinking about the importance of worldviews and philosophies. So with, with yoga, when I first got into it, I was attracted by how they said that there's really no upfront that there's no underlying beliefs. It's not a religion. There's no dogmas. You don't need any beliefs. You just do the technical practices. Mm -hmm. But I realized that's not exactly the case. The practices that I was being given all assumed a certain worldview. Mm -hmm. It just didn't make sense to do them unless I believed that this would, that 
this reflected a certain important spiritual thing inside of me and would lead to a good end. Mm-hmm. It didn't make sense to sit watching my breath, for example, without a belief in the sacredness of impersonal awareness and the importance of emptiness and attaining it. For oh example, gosh. in Buddhist beliefs. Yeah. yeah. Just, Otherwise, just on. Yeah, no, sorry, you go. You go. Otherwise, just why watch your breath? It doesn't make sense. Yeah. Just on that notion of emptiness, I probably don't have the same level of sophistication in understanding what that actually means. But for me, that was something that clued me in when I was meditating a lot, hours and hours a day of why am I, like, why am, do I have this goal of trying to empty myself? Because that was what the advice was. Um, because for me, the way I like intuited the world and the way things were intelligible to me was often through um, gut feelings, which I now recognize in some ways as sort of a, at least for me, a radar for truth. So then the idea to sit and like empty myself was like, but now I'm actually, I'm scared. I actually don't want to empty myself. That doesn't seem, it doesn't feel right. Something about it just seems really strange. Um, so for me, that was one of the big things that started to make me question, why am I sitting here trying to empty myself when it's often my my understanding intellectually through feeling that's led me to make really good choices? <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. Something I found a bit strange. But you're right. It's, it's a really radical worldview shift to believe yeah. in emptiness. Like yeah. normally fullness is a good thing in certain mm. respects, of course. Yeah. I mean, there's obviously some things that fill us up in an extreme sense, drugs or just overeating or yeah. sometimes too much emotions for men, especially be overwhelming yeah. for us. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but fullness can be good in, in other respects um, for the Buddhists. And to some extent for the yogis, although it varies between different types of yoga, your attachments are what prevents you from recognizing your authentic identity. So when you look into your own soul, you just feel all these movements, all these attachments, and your consciousness is sort of melded onto those attachments because you're attached to them. So you think that your feelings are what you are, or you think that your thoughts are the way that you are. But emptiness, it means to calm those emotions, calm those thoughts, and then empty yourself of them so that you can detach and just rest in the stillness of your pure awareness. Okay. All right. That kind of makes sense. Um, See, for me, I feel like I could do that. Um, I guess it was the introspective part that could observe what was happening. is that what they mean by emptiness um, or no, it's still a little more empty than that. <laughs> emptiness is the vehicle to that introspective awareness. Okay. You cultivate the emptiness so that you can gain an authentic introspective awareness. One that's rooted in your consciousness, your the right. witnessing awareness. Okay. And you're right that that, can be scary because you're divesting yourself of the attachments that form an important 
that you define yourself by and that give you meaning and direction and purpose in life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The second noble truth of Buddhism is that attachment is the cause of, um, of samsara, of suffering. Mm. So interesting. I, because I did, I believed that in a way. And honestly, um, when I look back at the decisions I made when I believed that attachments were not important. And because the, in the community, there's kind of this like, I'm so enlightened because I don't need any of this stuff. I don't need like this external stuff. I don't need community. I don't need security, man. Like I'm fine. And it's like, it's, it's, it's not necessarily a part of reality. That was my experience that the more I delved into that and believed that, that I was somehow um, it was not a worldview that was compatible with reality. That was my experience. It was like, no, I actually do need some attachments. Um, some things are actually really important and I'm I'm intentionally okay in being attached to this. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, the practitioners form different attachments. Uh, some of them are very attached to their teachers. Some of them are very attached to Buddhist doctrine. Some of them are very attached to their bank accounts and yeah. <laughs> certainly don't just focus on the present moment when it comes to their bank accounts. Yeah. So there, it was good, I could see, to detach from certain things, but other attachments were more important. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, absolutely. So um, you were saying that um, where were we? That that Ken Wilber's philosophy started making you ask questions in law school, especially when yeah. there are a lot of competing philosophies. Yeah. So tell us more. Um. So I I was getting a heavy dose of of postmodernism in law school of perspectivalism. All perspectives are equal. But Ken Wilber had a very good takedown of this, which is just that saying that all perspectives are equal is a perspective itself, which says it's better than other perspectives. Correct. It relies on that premise. Yeah. <laughs> Using its own first premises, therefore, it's false. <laughs> its very first premise, it, it's false. Oh, yep. So the postmodernism, oh, gosh, yeah. Well, when you, yeah, it all gives me the ick, but continue, please. <laughs> So I, I, yeah, I got the ick from this. Uh, <laughs> is that an Australian expression, by the way? Oh, must be. <laughs> Apologies. <laughs> well, no, I, I think it's quaint. I mean, it's that's a good example of a nice attachment. Like, yeah, Aussies right? have some of their interesting expressions, which uh, <laughs> give them a nice charm and distinctiveness. Uh, there's Matt Frad, for example, on YouTube, and he can make almost anything charming with his. Very true. <laughs> Very true. That's one of the things I admire about Australians. I, I watch some of the rugby, and um, I, I generally like, I've spent some time in New Zealand too. So oh, cool. They're there's like a lot of charm. At, yeah. At New Zealand's like an annoying little brother. Love you guys, but you'll never be Australian. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> It's all right. We, we have a banter. But, um, yeah, so this, you know, this notion of postmodernism, I really noticed it um, and that was something that deeply irritated me when I was spiritual but not religious, that 
there was no sort of objective morality or objective right and wrong. And I started to see it was so obvious people would use like I think they call it spiritual bypassing, but um, they'd use make up some spiritual excuse as to why something was fine. And it was just very clear that these people were resisting truth or resisting like accountability and saying things like, there's no right or wrong. It's my truth. And and I was like, this is really starting to not work. This doesn't work. Yeah. Oh, yeah. When you start to open up spiritually, you find a lot of strange things in your soul. And it's hard to just make sense of them. If you have a very relativistic attitude, first, there's no boundaries. There's no container. I mm -hmm. Within myself, I started to notice a lot of dark trends. Like, mm. We all have some garbage Absolutely. down there. And without, I, I realized that I could use something like boundaries, especially the more I opened spiritually, the stronger some of these things got. Mm -hmm. So I, I realized that it was important to have a sort of container to help open, to help with my spiritual opening. And that container is actually ethics. Yeah. Um, but before that, I also realized that uh, it's important to just have a good sense of truth to understand these spiritual dynamics. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I mean, of course, understanding is limited. It's not the most important thing. What's most important is to experience them, to really yeah. see them with the eye of your soul. But at the same time, it's important to just have a way of understanding what's going on so that you're not, so that you have a sense of where to go and yeah. a sense of what's happening with you. Mm -hmm. So as you start opening yourself up a lot, a lot, a lot, and then you're realizing these sort of like darker things, did it, did it freak you out? Like, was there a moment or were you just like, this is a bit weird? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, at first, uh, it was just a bit weird. Uh, mm -hmm. At the time, I didn't think too much of it because I didn't really realize where the dark rabbit holes that these things could go down. Mm -hmm. Then once I learned more about yoga, I started to realize the dark rabbit holes. My yoga teacher actually told me often about some of the pitfalls of going deep into these things where there's a lot of people who practice this type of yoga and become sort of dark sorcerers. <gasps> they really use their out. understanding of energy and their detachment from it in order to then manipulate their energy and the energy of other people for their own ends. They just become Gosh. so skilled at manipulating the energies of their soul, they can also do it in other people. And the... The way that Hatha Yoga is actually founded is a, is a really spooky example of this. Tell us. <laughs> so I was talking about Kashmir Shaivism earlier. That's mm -hmm. where Hatha Yoga came out from. This is from Christopher okay. Wallace, by the way. He's a professor at University of Colorado Boulder, and he's a yoga guru himself, actually. So it's not like I'm taking this from right-wing blogs on the internet. <laughs> nice. <laughs> And then I verified this with a couple other yoga sources that cite original sources. So Hatha Yoga comes from Kashmiri Shaivism, 
And in 11th century India, Kashmir was starting to suffer a lot from the invasions of Muslims. So a lot of the gurus spread out to other places in India. One of these gurus was really into the occult side of the practice. His name was Matsyandra, and there's actually a yoga pose named after him in modern Hatha yoga, Matsyandra Asana. Mm -hmm. He decided he was doing this yoga that really opened him up to all these different desires. And he was part of this left-hand practice that although they might accept some ethical constraints early on in their yoga training, the ethical constraints then are pragmatically cast aside. It just becomes a free-for-all of whatever you can do to enhance your own consciousness. And that might mean satiating some of these dark desires in order then that they don't cloud your awareness. They don't distract mm. you from being present. Wow. That's or really dangerous. They're playing with fire or even the ecstatic, the ecstasy of these experiences can be a means of enlightenment for them. Is there like an example of what type of desires they might be satisfying to enhance their consciousness? So Matsyandra had these desires for both power and for lust. So what he did is he used his occult powers to infiltrate a king's palace, seduce the king's wife, get into the king's wine cellar, and then have his way with the king's harem of 1,600 dancing girls. Oh, my goodness me. <laughs> okay. And so, okay. All right. Keep going. <laughs> While he was cavorting with wine and women like this, an ardent disciple named Garakshanath approached him without any judgment. And Garakshanath was very ascetical and very harsh. So these two represent sort of competing poles in Hatha Yoga. On the one hand, there's the power-based occult side. And on the other hand, there's the more, uh, there's the ascetical self-denial side. Okay, wow. So Garakshanath comes in and he decides he's going to bring his guru out of this indulgence. So first he beats the drum to awaken him out of this. And then he gets a hold of the son that Matsyandra has sired with the queen and he kills the son. And then he skins the corpse and hangs it up to dry to symbolize yogic purification. Wow. Be charming. Just charming. <laughs> then... That's one version. The other version, which I don't believe, is that he turned all the dancing girls into bats. <laughs> I'm not joking. <laughs> yeah. Oh, what my. <laughs> these, okay. these are all legends, of course, from, yeah. uh, you know, there's three or so different legends that talk about this story. And one of them has the changing all the dancing girls into bats. That one I don't believe, but he <laughs> seems like a severe guy that would be very... Uh, he would probably have not so nice things to say to them. Mm -hmm. um, I, but I do frankly believe the one about him killing the child, because that's actually pretty common, even in modern India, where there's a good amount of child sacrifice. And you know, this is, this is sort of a fall away from yogic consciousness, but then in order to redeem them, in order to redeem Matsyandra, they uh, sacrifice an innocent victim. Uh, in he falls because he's trying to gain empowerment for himself by satiating his desires in this extreme way. 
And then the two of them went on to found Hatha Yoga. Okay. Okay. Keep going. <laughs> so that's an example of some of these dark uh, yes. areas this can go down. And I mean, stories like that just told me first that there, there needs to be some kind of ethical constraint. And also that there really is a worldview and heritage behind these things. Yeah. Where were you, like, when you read this? Like, I, I wish I could have been a fly on the wall. Were you like, <laughs> or was it sort of over time that the pieces came together? Over time, the pieces came together. I mean, honestly, that story didn't strike me too badly when I was practicing yoga because I was very detached uh, so much that my soul is a bit numb to these things. And I just said, mm -hmm. oh, well, that's just symbolic. It's not a big deal. But, yeah. you know, at the same time, I taught, I studied a lot of Carl Jung and, and people like that. And I realized, hey, symbols really do influence our soul in a big way. They influence our unconscious in a big way. And we need to be careful about what kind of symbols we invoke. Oh, my gosh. Absolutely. I noticed that um, when I was meditating a lot, I was like, this actually does work. Um, like, I'm really noticing these differences in my body like in how I feel the things I'm noticing I I mentioned this to you last time we spoke but I became really aware of like the only way to put it is darkness around me kind of like how you said you you became quite aware of sort of the darkness inside and I had a similar experience and I was like I don't necessarily want to get in touch with this this is now concerning me like weird things were happening I was just like even like, again, I, I don't know what I was invoking, but I would I started having like lights um, flashing a lot in my house. It was really freaky, especially when I was meditating. And I thought it was cool for a while. I was like, <laughs> and yeah. now I'm like, <laughs> oh, my goodness. But, yes, things were happening. And that induces was, um, a lot of spiritual pride because you feel, oh, yeah, I'm getting some spiritual power here. Yeah interesting yep. stuff that's happening yeah i'm like look how good i am look how enlightened i am i'm so connected and then i started to realize what am i connected to it's a yeah. bit um like you've said like a free-for-all where are the ethics if i'm becoming so open are there any rules here because there should be yeah and then what powers are doing this like yeah this is some spiritual power that's being invoked and, and that's kind of cool, but where is this power coming from? And whenever you gain something from a power, there's something that they want back. Yeah, That's just the way it works in normal relationships. And it's the same in the spiritual world. If you start to owe these powers something that they'll yeah. want back from you. Mm -hmm. So tell me more about Carl. Um, young so basically he was you, you're reading about how symbolism can affect you um yeah tell me more about that i i had a big man crush on carl young for a time this i read about 10 of his books and things like that um and he presents these types of things in a more scientific light you know he talks a lot about the unconscious things happening in the soul Mm -hmm. from the perspective of analyzing myth and then trying to build more integrated personalities 
by working with these symbols of the soul. Mm -hmm. First, he really convinced me of the importance of the unconscious, just how powerful it is. There's so much happening in our unconscious. Neuroscientists nowadays tell us that we have 11 million bits of data that our brains process every second, but only 40 are conscious. Wow. I really saw this throughout my military time in combat. You know, the whole purpose of training is to program your unconscious. And then in combat, there's so much information and so many things happening. If you try and think about all of it, then you're going to get paralyzed very quickly. Mm. I know because I tried. I mean, I was kind of a physics nerd going into (laughs) the military and people respected that. But my sergeants also made fun of me for overthinking things and they were correct. Eventually, I realized that you have to just sift through information using unconscious parameters. Yep. You have to make decisions based on a lot on unconscious considerations that are programmed through your training. And then you have to communicate in a way that can only be understood with a lot of unconscious background, shared unconscious meanings, in order to be effective together. Like you have to be able to say a few words to one of your sergeants or something, and then have him understand in a much bigger way what that means because you have a common programming from your training. Mm -hmm. And then this applies to so many areas of life where the the unconscious is is very important. Um, Different cultures have very different unconscious assumptions about the symbolic meaning of different actions, different values, different symbols. And I saw just how much these unconscious assumptions influence my life. It's especially true in modern culture because modern culture doesn't really have good conscious ways of describing a lot of the currents of the soul. So they end up becoming unconscious. Mm -hmm. But even when you make them conscious, there's so many complexities and nuances. Like just think about all the unconscious nuances of falling in love. You make a conscious choice, mind you, to allow yourself to do that. But then the unconscious changes are huge. Or a soldier might make the conscious choice to join the military just because he wants a steady wage and good health insurance. But uh, there's a lot of changes that he'll undergo unconsciously through his training and through being part of that organization. Mm-hmm. Now, what Young really enlightened me to is the way that we engage the unconscious is through symbols. Symbols are great in that they include so much in a single focal point. There's a lot of changes, a lot of good things they can work in the unconscious when all we have to do is look at one more simple focal point. It could be like a warrior archetype or it could be a role model that represents some some symbol Mm -hmm. or something. And the other thing too, is that symbols really engage our hearts. They often come in the form of stories that engage our feelings, or they're accompanied by rituals that really leave an imprint that this is something very important. So that really lets them sink into our souls, influence us on a deep level. Just look at all the compelling myths that have shaped human cultures for all time. And even modern day psychologists are starting to say things like, the creation of meaning through narrative is indeed central to our existence because they see the importance of these narratives and shaping symbols in our souls. Mm-hmm. So even though he was claiming to do secular science, Jung talked about the importance of archetypes, of, of viewing the archetypes with numinosity, with sacredness. 
So it started to adopt this religious understanding. Mm-hmm. So it's funny as you say that. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Jonathan Peugeot. Um, he's got, yeah, he, he's really incredible, but he talks a lot. He's Orthodox Christian and he talks a lot about um, symbolic and narrative truth as literally like the precondition for truth. So when people say it's just a symbol, it's absolutely not just a symbol. Um, it has real, yeah, real implications. Um, his work's fantastic for anyone that wants to check it out, but I'm grateful for his work because I really understand, yeah, what you're saying about young and it's pretty freaky, pretty freaky stuff. Yes. I mean, the, the world of symbols is so vast and so big and we often don't understand their their implications. So mm-hmm. that's one of the reasons why I, I then wanted to understand these Eastern religions on a deeper level. At that point, mm-hmm. I wasn't put off by them at all. Yeah. These considerations just motivated me to really learn the true uh, the true beliefs of them and their true philosophy and things like that. So I delve very mm-hmm. deeply into that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I studied Christopher Wallace, for example, the guy that I mentioned before, and I just learned a lot about their underlying beliefs and philosophy. Mm-hmm. So you wanted to learn more because now you're like, there's so much more depth to to yoga and the things that I'm practicing. Like if I'm only aware of, you know, use the example of say 40 we take in 40 bits of however many millions or billions. Was there like a thirst to understand more of what was happening unconsciously and subconsciously? Oh, yeah. I I really wanted to understand why I was doing these things. It, mm-hmm. I could see that the practices also changed my soul, like you said, and mm-hmm. that made me predisposed towards these beliefs, actually. The fact that I was growing, so the fact that I was getting more detached made me Mm -hmm. better able to understand the teachings on detachments and some of Ken Wilber's philosophy when he talks about eternal witness and things like that. It it also made my soul more disposed towards believing them. Mm. I was really changing the way I thought and changing also my heart in some important ways in doing this. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. Um, so what did you kind of figure out as you decided to understand more of what was happening to you unconsciously? I remember you, I heard you talk about, I think it was the warrior pose. Yeah. Um, and I found that really interesting. Yeah. So when I first got into yoga, I thought, oh, this is really cool. I'm doing a warrior pose and <laughs> learning to become a warrior. And I thought, oh, this is nice to invoke this symbol. But then once I started to think about it in this way, I thought, oh, hang on a minute. I need to actually learn about what kind of warrior symbol this is. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of bad warriors. And some of them I encountered in the military, and there were a lot of bad ways of being a warrior. Yeah. Uh, you want to evoke good symbolism to inspire warriors <laughs> and not like, yeah, uh, I won't get into some of the negative sides of, of soldiering, but uh, unless you're really interested, but that's a, a dark rabbit hole. Um, so I, I just, the name of the pose is Virabhadra Asana. Virabhadra is a Hindu god that the pose is named after. So the pose is really a way of reverencing that symbol, that archetype. 
because it has his name and you're actually reenacting something Virabhadra did. So Virabhadra was uh, created by Shiva, the main Hindu god. Mm-hmm. And this is because Shiva's wife was very pious, but also had a problematic relationship with her father. So her father didn't invite her to a religious ritual. So she killed herself out of despondency. Shiva was not happy about this. He wanted revenge on his father-in-law, so he created Virabhadra and sent him after his father-in-law. Virabhadra sprouts out of the ground near his opponent. Then he gets his target in his sight, and then he lunges at his target to decapitate him. This is warrior one, two, and three, the sequence of it. So every time yogis do that sequence, they're reenacting this myth. Oh my gosh, that's freaky. That freaks me out <laughs> because you recognize something is happening to you spiritually. You know there's things happening unconsciously. And then you're you're now aware of you're actually invoking something you might not necessarily want to invoke <laughs> yeah. or should be invoking. And yeah. before, I mean, I didn't know that myth, but I was still kind of invoking just that role model and that way of being in a looser sense. I mean, it's not like it was leading to demonic possession immediately but yeah it it was just encouraging that kind of symbol in my life Mm -hmm. which was having some unconscious changes Mm -hmm. as a result and then uh kali pose is even worse uh so if you look on yoga journal which is the most prominent source for yoga news in the u.s according to internet traffic you'll find an article that says that the pose invokes Kali. So these poses are reverencing the symbol and they're invoking the symbol. Whether you believe that they're spirits or not, these are still sort of role models or archetypes or symbols that are being invoked. Yeah. So Kali, if you look at pictures of her, she has a necklace of severed human heads, a loincloth of severed human human arms, and she's usually (laughs) pictured over a corpse. Some of her, not quite scriptures, but sort of highly revered Hindu texts about Kali just laud the benefits of human sacrifice. And indeed, there's still a good amount of human sacrifice in India today, and a lot of it is to Kali. The Indian version of the FBI actually collected statistics on this for a couple of years, but it actually proved very embarrassing to the Hindu nationalist government because they recorded thousands of such cases of occult-related murders and abuses. So if I went to, like, because I know there's different types of yoga, but, like, say I go to, like, a normal yoga class down the street in my metropolitan city, is it possible that I'm doing, like, warrior pose and collie pose, for example? You'll definitely do warrior pose. Uh, You might do collie pose. I did collie pose maybe once every couple of classes, but warrior pose is one of the most common ones. It's in every class. Yikes. (laughs) So, okay. So when you learned this, where were you? Like, were you still detached? Because I find it really interesting that your experience in the army um, and, and unfortunately seeing some dark soldiers, I guess you could say, do you think that really primed you to understand the seriousness of say the even just the warrior pose for example i i started to view this as weird at least okay Okay. also thanks to just having a little bit of 
Jewish upbringing. I mean, my Jewish upbringing wasn't very serious, but at least gave me a, some kind of moral intuition. Just because the the law has been so important to the Jewish people for so long, it just seems almost in our DNA by this point to <laughs> be suspicious at least of things <laughs> like this. But I didn't really fully understand the spiritual implications yet, because mm -hmm. uh, I, what I actually ran up against is the influence of the New Left in uh, modern Eastern religions. Now. Mm -hmm. I, I quickly recognize that there is an important difference between the new left and the traditional practice of these religions. Mm -hmm. But I also realize that in the West, it's almost impossible to separate them. Now, when I say new left, I'm talking about all the things that screamed to the fore in the 1960s countercultural revolution, perspectivalism, yeah. uh, neo-Marxism, this kind of, uh, a lot of it is very hedonistic and liberating yeah. desire and things like that. So that made it really hard for me because I, I had some perspectivalist uh, conditioning to mm -hmm. fully appreciate the implications of these things I was learning. What's but, okay. an example, yeah, of some well, of this conditioning? Kali might be very vicious and evil, but I'm not going to human sacrifice. <laughs> it doesn't matter that I'm kind of participating in this cult. And yeah. You know, that's just a symbol for uh, sometimes being very vicious when tackling things that hold me back, like setting healthy mm -hmm. boundaries in a relationship or something. Mm -hmm. Do you know what this is making me think of? Slight um, anecdote. But, oh, you know, this very unfortunate cultural obsession with psychedelics. Um, I mean, it's been around for a long time, but now it's like, I'm going to Mexico and I'm going to do, I don't know, like ayahuasca. And I'm like, God, God, please protect you because I'm hearing stories. I mean, even spiritual people will say um, like there's this sort of elitism that's like you have to be ready because if you're not ready for the psychedelic experience, it will scatter you. Um, I don't know if you've heard that. Um, it's like, oh, yeah. it's like, yeah. And, and well, I experienced it. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Okay. Do you mind talking just a little bit about it? So I actually went to Peru with to be with the Shipibo, who are called Master Ayahuascoers. They're probably the best. Uh -huh. And this okay. is in Iquitos, which is the largest city in the world, only accessible by boat or air. Wow. You can't okay. drive there. It's in the middle of the rainforest. They just cleared this Whoa. tract in the rainforest, and that's now Iquitos. It's along a tributary to the Amazon. So you went there? I went there and then we took a boat to some random group of huts out in the jungle. And there we were with the Shipibo okay. uh, doing their healing ceremonies and things. Okay. Now, what you were alluding to before is this unfortunate tendency to just open to everything, to just be mm -hmm. open without really appreciating what you're being open to. Mm -hmm. Just be open to all spiritual experience. And this mm -hmm. was a very, this is a, a, both a feature of the new left, but I think it's also a feature of some of the traditions in, in Eastern religions. And the psychedelics just take that to extremes. We are opening to so much that you don't know about. Now, I went on this retreat with two other young men. One of them later overdosed on opioids and the other became a Marxist neo-Nazi. 
Oh, wow. He okay. Sent me all these conspiracy theories about how the Holocaust was actually a Jewish conspiracy and a bunch of Marxist stuff, too. Oh, no. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so they bought, so, okay. So, this experience of mass opening, drug induced opening, do you, because some people, I mean, if you're doing it, you most people do recognize it. I'm definitely seeing things. Like, did you see, if you don't mind me asking, like spirits or encounter anything really strange? So the shaman said that my mind and body were so strong that I wasn't as open to the ayahuasca. But what did happen is I just started to feel some more relational openness. I could sort of feel the throb of the jungle. And then it also just brought out of me a lot of my own romantic passions. Okay. They came screaming to the fore in a way that was way too much, frankly, though. <laughs> and I just didn't know what to do with them after I left the jungle. It was one thing to be all romantic and, you know, feel the heartthrob of the jungle when you're in the jungle. But then I get back to this huge city and, and I'm trying to figure out what to do with my life. And uh, there's, there's all these confusing passions. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, it's so strange that the whole thing that something always made me feel honestly that it was like deeply demonic it's like let me get inside you now like open so i can <laughs> that was always my sense of it yeah i don't know yeah, a lot of it did get dark in that i just uh i felt all this pitifulness inside of me that um what i didn't feel like a lot of the spiritual influences were good that I opened myself up to. I mean, some of them I think helped me in a way, but some of them were just really dark. Mm -hmm. And there was this very confusing world that it was so difficult to wade into, even though like one of the ladies who was really into astrology at the place had called me a warrior for light or something. Like, even though I felt I, I had this strong intention to want to do good with these things, I, I was just in way over my head with all mm -hmm. this opening, especially not being part of some trained discipline. Mm -hmm. So then I eventually, after all of this weird romantic pitifulness, I, I realized the importance of having a discipline in life. So I really went deep with my Kashmiri Shabbistic spiritual director into, into a more authentic yoga, one that was more okay. traditional. And I, for a short time, I was very militantly against the new age influence in modern yoga in the West. Yeah, makes sense. Because of all these bad experiences, yeah. Yeah. And so when you sort of started to understand, like when when was the, how did the turning point come about of, because um, you're, you're a Catholic now. So how did that come about from practicing this really sort of rigorous technical yoga? Like I think from hearing what you're saying that that would have been enough, you know, it's, it's got enough rigor, some ethics to it. You know, it, it criticizes this new left that you talk about. Um, so why wasn't that enough? Yeah. Um, that's a, a very good question. So first, I started to just appreciate so many different nuances in the soul. I was practicing some relational yoga, for example. There's so many things going on in the soul mm -hmm. with that. And there's so many different little things to perfect. 
I talked about how my yoga teacher gave me a different practice for everything. It was maddening the amount of practices that he gave me. Wow. I mean, they were really good and powerful and they were making good changes, but it was the, it was just so many different nuances to the soul and so many different types of practices that I realized it was really something only accessible to an elite. Like, yeah. My spiritual director was incredible, but without someone like him, this would have been impossible. And also without some of my military training, all the discipline that I gained from that, and also some of my education, being able to mm -hmm. rationally think these through, it would have mm -hmm. just been impossible to really rigorously follow this path. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I was doing it all by my own power. At least I thought I was doing it all by my own power at that point. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to grapple with all of these fine nuances to the soul that it was just impossible to do. Yeah. And also I, I could see that in order to sort of maintain that purity, the, these yogis who I, I respected a lot and I, I still actually keep in touch with my old spiritual director and um, I, I still respect him a lot, but um they would sort of hide out in their own little clique mm -hmm. of other people with similar vibes to them in order to prevent <laughs> too much contamination. How they, they wouldn't do something like what mother Teresa did of going out on the streets and spending, opening themselves up to the poorest of the poor, because then that creates a lot of weird things happening in your soul. Like it, it's hard to open yourself up in that way spiritually yeah. by your own power it's especially hard it's really interesting because um when you think of enlightenment and reaching that you think you think it means that you have the capacity to be sort of a man of all people and you know to go out into the world and be exposed to the poor but to hear that out of necessity almost to maintain this thing they needed to stay together and be very careful and rigorous and, and, and not being contaminated. It's like sounds a bit antithetical in some ways to enlightenment. Like, again, coming back to that impracticality of reality doesn't work that way, you know? Yeah. So I, I did a good amount of research into the, the charity work of Eastern religions in a traditional way. And mm -hmm. first, I, I just didn't find any ethical mandate in any of the traditional things I studied for that. Mm -hmm. um, I searched through it. I searched through Christopher Wallace and I searched through some uh, actual um, primary texts like the Song of the Sacred Tremor was one of my favorite ones, for example. I really respected the writings of Abhinava Gupta, for example. But there wasn't a really strong demand for social service for charity mm -hmm. and for sacrifice in the name of service. There's maybe a little bit more of it in some of the Vaishnavid traditions of Hinduism, mm -hmm. but uh, Vi Vishnu has incarnated several times and, and they do more bhakti yoga, uh, the Hare mm -hmm. Krishnas, for example, but it's, it's still not uh, nearly the same as what you would see with Mother Teresa or someone like that. And the, a lot of, 
Buddhists and Hindus didn't really do any charity work until Christian missionaries came and started to do a lot of it. So they wanted to compete with them. So they started doing more. Mm -hmm. So why was that important to you? Like, how did you know that was a thing to look for charity and service? Uh, I, I really always felt the the urge for that. That's why I joined the military was I wanted to serve in a really cool way and in the way that's <laughs> very challenging and, and important. Uh, mm-hmm. And and that was good for for a time to to do that. But that romanticism, of course, only gets you so far. So. Then throughout my studies at Yale, I I really came to see the importance of social service. There's Mm -hmm. really not much to motivate us to have a good positive sense of social ethics, to make good governance work. I was studying a lot of governance, especially in my military studies. I was really interested in counterinsurgency theory, which uh, has a lot of implications for governance. I was studying policing a lot. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering what really makes good soldiers, what makes good police what makes them really want to serve the law and not just mm-hmm. use their positions for their own power mm-hmm. or just serve in a lackluster way where they're not really pouring themselves out into it? Mm-hmm. Why should people sacrifice themselves to lift other people up to truth and love? Mm-hmm. Yoga got me thinking about these things. or Yale got me thinking about these things in a deep way. I started thinking about what life is really about, what makes it worth living, what are the most fundamental values. And with yoga, I started doing it with some spiritual intuition. Mm-hmm. I was fasting and I was meditating regularly. So I started to ask those deep questions with some sense of contemplation and with some sense of the eye of the heart. Mm-hmm. And that just opened up a very rich side of life. I started to understand the importance of truth and love, but also ask what really could motivate that. And it was actually my yoga spiritual director that first brought up Jesus Christ as just a role model for this. I didn't believe he was the son of God or anything. I thought all that doctrine was incredibly strange (laughs) and weird, but I was just really impressed because he was willing to totally sacrifice himself to lift other people up to truth and love. Mm-hmm. Offering himself as a complete gift, even though he obviously had so many, so much spiritual capacity or uh, so much, what would what would I have called it at the time? His uh, <laughs> vibes, his, yeah, <laughs> yeah, his vibes were very strong, or his practice <laughs> was very strong, or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Clearly, he had this, but he was also incredibly loving and charitable mm-hmm. towards others. Mm-hmm. And so that I'm guessing you started reading a little more about Jesus and his high vibes. I, I don't know if you've heard, um, there's a big thing. It's like they call it Christ consciousness. Uh, uh, um, have you heard of that term? Maybe it's an Aussie thing. Vaguely. I, I think we have it in the U.S. quite a bit. But, uh, yeah, I mean, Christ certainly had a lot of consciousness. But there, there's Absolutely. A lot, he had a lot more, you know. It, it's what he had omniscience and that he was aware of everything. But then what do you do with those things once you're aware of it? You have yeah. to properly interpret it. You have to form an attention to it. And then you have to be able to actualize that intention as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so in my case, I, I actually didn't know that much about Christianity at the time. Um, 
but I just wanted to discern sort of the basic contours of the religion. I respected the fact that it had a monastic tradition because that told me it was serious about contemplation mm-hmm. and, and the spiritual side. But then I was also thinking about its epistemological process, like how it derives truth. At Yale, there was some very rigorous epistemology, some of which was very good, but some of which was very flimsy. Mm-hmm. Everyone wanted to believe that their own little academic niche was the most important one and would provide all the answers to everything. And so that's what they would push. Mm-hmm. But uh, I started to just, and in yoga too, I was a little frustrated by this because even though I had a great spiritual director, you know, he was only just one man. And then sometimes I wasn't sure. I, sorry. I, um, <laughs> All good. All good. So, <laughs> so I, um, I, I was thinking about the, what other sources to trust for this, for this knowledge and I was looking into some of the traditional ones and I just found a, a big divergent array of sources and it was really hard to rigorously evaluate them but I applied some of the same good standards that I learned at Yale to them and I didn't really find a good epistemology it was more just like I'm a guru so this is what I think and people should just follow me and I have my own little clique and then Christopher Wallace, for example, talks about how as a student, it's completely on you to figure out who's the correct guru. And he actually said that if the guru then abuses that position of authority, that's the student's fault because they're, they chose the guru. And you should just hop from guru to guru, drinking the nectar from each one. Um, it's like spiritual hedonism in a way. <laughs> yes. I mean, I was throughout... I started to reflect on my own journey at that point, And I realized that I was very much in love with the search for the truth. It was like going from sugar high to sugar high. Mm. Hedonism in a sense, where I would have a certain set of questions or problems. One type of practice would solve those or one spiritual system. And then I would be really happy and on a high for that for a time, but then it would lead to other problems that uh, I couldn't explain. So then I would find something else that explained those problems and I'd be back on a high and everything was great. But it was this constant up and down where I was just more in love with the search for truth rather than the truth itself. Mm-hmm. So I said to myself, all right, my journey can't be that different than others. There's got to be other people who have gone through this before. Mm-hmm. But which ones should I trust? <laughs> And I was just really impressed by how the, ch- the church has had a communion of people so committed to this. I mean, they devote their entire lives taking vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. And then the church figures out which ones are really trustable. They, they call them saints, the ones that have really lived the Christian life with a lot of faithfulness and commitment and have cut away all the bad influences that can distort the truth. And so have really focused on learning the truth from God and communicating that in a good way. It's mm-hmm. a 2000 year communion of people sorting it out with one another, often in vicious debates to really get to the, the core of what is truth and how we should live well. Mm-hmm. You know, as you say this, it reminds me of how 
all my meditating and and all these sort of mini truths because I mean even the Catholic Church recognizes there's truth in every religion every practice oh, yeah. but it was when I opened the Bible and read the Word of God that it like pierced my soul in a way that it it wouldn't have you know before all of this sort of spiritual practice like it just hit and I was like this this is um this is what I've been looking for yeah oh yeah I know what you mean I I opened the bible and I well first off I was really impressed by the truth of Kashmiri shops and even nowadays I can see what you talk about how you know they had a sort of proto-revelation a partial revelation yeah where the good ones, especially the ones who naturally followed a good moral life, could get access to some real authentic truth. Mm -hmm. And they have their own notion of the Trinity that's actually pretty compelling and some okay. other impressive sides to their doctrine. Mm -hmm. But it, at the end of the day, it was lacking in certain respects. And then I opened the Bible, and first I found a lot of the same truths of Kashmiri Shabbosm. I just had to pay a lot less for them. <laughs> modern yoga one of my former instructors charges men a thousand dollars for two and a half hours of his time to not not my spiritual director the main one but another teacher um does this and he teaches men how to use their superior consciousness to seduce women lovely yeah. charming <laughs> so i uh, that is uh, pretty costly and certainly not in line with social service. So I found these truths in the Bible, but they struck me much more deeply. And then I read this book about Saints Teresa of Avila and John of the Cross, two of the Carmelite saints, mm -hmm. and they're well-respected in other religions. Uh, Ken Wilber would talk about St. Teresa some. Wow. So Buddhists appreciate John of the Cross a lot because his theology is as close to Buddhism as you get. I mean, there's some very important differences. I mean, he focuses completely on emptying, freeing yourself mm. of every attachment, but every attachment that keeps you from God. That's the key. Yes. Yeah. yeah. He loves nature and uh, music, for example, mm -hmm. in the way that it could point him towards God. Mm -hmm. His his whole spirituality is centered around nada, nothing, nothingness. Mm -hmm. But that emptying was so that he could then be filled by God. And yeah. once even just reading that book, the fire within really let from the pages. Is, These people are both really empty. I mean, they've attained some really amazing contemplation, but that leads to a fire to, to light them up so that they can then, you know, have some good attachments towards doing good and, and truth yes. and love. Yeah. Oh, that's so, so important because that's exact. I feel like in a way that's what happened to us. We became empty and then filled, <laughs> filled um, with with Christ. Really. Yeah. 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 Eastern religions are good for encouraging that emptiness. I mean, mm -hmm. in, in modern secular society, there's not much of a good sense <laughs> of it. And then even in um, modern. Catholicism, the, that side is not so emphasized. Mm. Yeah. So I guess the last thing um, just quickly is I, I was talking about this last night, like kind of the notion of informed consent because people are going in to do yoga and they're not really, they, they don't fully know what they're consenting to. Like we oh, use yeah. those examples. Um, 
And like, yeah, so in a way they say we're not trying to convert you, but by doing this very practice, you, you're going to have to assume this worldview and you're going to have to believe this and all these other unconscious things are happening to you, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, they're not upfront about any of these things, frankly. Yeah. I had to really search for that. And a lot of it was very basic things. I went into some of the, the deeper things like the origin of yoga. I mean, before you get into something, you want to know the origin of it. Mm -hmm. and where it comes from like we teach everyone history so they know the origin of the society they're being born into yeah um but it took me a while to figure that out and then just in some very basic ways that's true like what does the term yoga mean mm -hmm. i asked yeah, that it, mean? it means to yoke in sanskrit so it connotes spiritual unity rooted in kind of servitude you know like wearing the same yoke that oxen wear wow so the next natural question is, okay, what are the terms of the servitude and what am I being yoked to? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And now uh, we know. <laughs> well, when you're doing these poses about murdering Shiva's father-in-law, it's, uh, it's a problematic yeah. form of being a warrior. And then just the term conscious, you know, the, the yogis will, there's so many ways that the religious beliefs permeate the modern practice. I mean, if you look on Yoga Journal, there's all this talk about how you have to read the Bhagavad Gita, and that's required reading a lot of teacher trainings. There's tons of other religious texts. All, most of the texts for teacher trainings are written by Hindus or Buddhists. Wow. Uh, it's a lot of very religious teaching. They talk, they chant um a lot. They uh, talk about the evilness of the ego. That's a very radical Buddhist belief. And... Mm -hmm. Uh, eventually I realized, and then one of my biggest letdowns when I was practicing these religions was when I finally looked up the term consciousness in the dictionary. If this yeah. is your central term, you should tell people what it means. Like, uh, everything is consciousness. Whoa, man. <laughs> I thought, oh, wow. That sounds cool. But, uh, if everything's consciousness, what is consciousness? Like, oh, yeah. just don't worry about it, man. Just, just feel it. <laughs> it was like, oh, yeah, I'll experience that. But, but then how do I make sense of these experiences? What, what is my consciousness? And it just means awareness. And it's all this, yeah, it's like, oh, and real. okay, it's just an awareness. Yeah, <laughs> it's a I little anticlimactic. <laughs> Christopher Wallace has some means of justifying that that were dismissed in what that are similar to some trends in western philosophy but they were dismissed a long time ago as uh really bad arguments um but i i could even realize just in my own awareness that you know some i would become aware of something even if it was one of my own thoughts or feelings but then i would have to interpret it then i would have to form an intention to it and then i would actually actualize that intention those are mm -hmm three very separate movements of the soul yeah that are distinct from consciousness mm -hmm. and that's uh, where christianity came in i'm guessing well it gave me a much more complete way of understanding all of these things i mean god has omniscience complete consciousness but he also has a uh, perfect intellect for interpretation he has an omnipotent will for actualizing these things and then christ is sort of the ultimate actualization of his mercy and that he became man uniting divine nature to our human nature so yes. that we could be freed from our the things that keep us away from him all of our mm -hmm. our bad uh dirt within us 
and so then be more completely united with him. Mm-hmm. And oh that's gosh, true like... conversion. I mean, these mm-hmm. things I was talking about earlier are an actual radical conversion. Like everything is consciousness. That's a huge change in thinking and opening your heart to everything. That's a huge change of heart. Yeah. That's really what conversion means. Uh-huh. But this example, you know, Christ, the way that he did it, that was a really compelling example of conversion where it was honest. It was okay. This is what the conversion is about. You have to follow me, take on my yoke. And these are the terms of doing that. Mm -hmm. You have to suffer in order to then be united with me because this is the ultimate goodness. Mm -hmm. And this is the way to it. You know, this is the, the truth, the way in life. Yeah. Oh, so beautiful, so incredible. And I'm really glad that um, we got to chat, Alex, because I've sensed so much um, similarities in our, in our story and in somewhat an, an appreciation for these many truths that, that ultimately, you know, sort of led us somewhere else. Um, so, yeah, thank you so, so much for coming on the show. And I know that you have soon, I don't know when, you're, I know you're busy and you're studying, but you'll have a website soon. Um, so as soon as that's out, I'll be sure to put it in the show notes. And you also did an interview with Matt Frad. So if anyone yes. wants more Alex Frank, they can go check out that interview as well. <laughs> and that's on YouTube. It's uh, on yoga. And I published an article recently on Catholic Answers on oh, some of this great. that will give you more insight, uh, a more clear-cut explanation. But Kat, it's been really great getting to know you and to to hear about your story. Um, You know, there's a lot of good that can come from seeking. And uh, I hope that this can be be done, that this can lead to good for other people. And Mm -hmm. uh, it's been very pleasant. Also, Aussies are very charming. (laughs) Why, thank you. (laughs) Thank you so much, Alex.